strategy. Joining us now to discuss this and so much more, USA Today columnist and newly minted CNN political analyst Kirsten Powers. Kirsten, so great to have you here. On just wanted to introduce to you Kirsten Powers. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. She's quite well known in the States, uh, a political analyst and very involved in uh, the recent election. And uh, so she's been seen many times uh, talking about uh, Hillary Clinton particularly, but also about Trump. And um, she actually worked in Bill Clinton's administration back in the 90s. And uh, she's uh, very involved in politics and in uh, journalism and all these things. And she wrote this article that I want to read excerpts from uh, for you this morning. This is how the article goes. Just seven years ago, if someone told me that I'd be writing for Christianity Today magazine about how I came to believe in God, I would have laughed out loud. <laughs> if there was one thing which I was completely secure it was that I would never adhere to any religion, especially not to evangelical Christianity, which I held in particular contempt. My world became aggressively secular. Everyone I knew was politically left-wing leaning, and my group of friends were overwhelmingly atheists. A friend had asked me once if I had any deal breakers when it came to dating, and my response was, oh, just nobody who's religious. But as fate would have it, about a week after saying that, I started dating this man who was a believer in Jesus. And one day he said, do you believe Jesus is your savior? My stomach sank. I started to panic, she says. Oh no, was my first thought, he's crazy. <laughs> when I answered no, he asked, do you think you could ever believe it? I didn't want to mislead him. I said I would never believe in Jesus. And then he said the magic words for a liberal. Well, do you think you could at least keep an open mind about it? <laughs> well, of course, I'm just always open-minded, she, she writes, even though I wasn't at all. <laughs> I derided Christians as anti-intellectual bigots who were too weak to face the reality that there was no rhyme or reason to this world. I found that this man's church attendance was an oddity to be overlooked, not a point in his favor by any stretch. And as he talked... I grew conflicted. On the one hand, I was creeped out, she says. On the other hand, I had enormous respect for him. He was smart, educated, intellectually curious. And I remember thinking, what if this is true? And I'm not even willing to consider it. A few weeks later, I went to church with him. The pastor preached. I was fascinated. I had never heard a pastor talk about the things he did. Tim Keller's sermons were intellectually rigorous, weaving in art and history and philosophy. I decided to come back and hear him again. And each week, Keller made the case for Christianity. He also made the case against atheism and agnosticism. He expertly exposed the intellectual weaknesses of pure secular worldview. And I came to realize that even if Christianity wasn't the real thing, neither was atheism. And I began to read my Bible. My boyfriend would pray for me for God to reveal himself to me. And after about eight months of going to hear Keller, I concluded that the weight of evidence was on the side of Christianity. But I didn't feel any connection to God. And frankly, I was fine with that. I continued to think that people who talked of hearing from God or experiencing God were either delusional or lying. 
In my most generous moments, I allowed that they were just imagining things that made them feel good. Then one night in 2006, on a trip to Taiwan, I woke up in what feel, felt like a strange place between the dream world and reality. And Jesus came to me and said, here I am. It felt so real. I didn't know what to make of it. I tried to write it off the experiences, misfiring synapses, you know, in my brain. But I couldn't shake it. And when I returned to New York a few days later, I was lost. Suddenly, I felt God everywhere. And it was terrifying. More important, it was unwelcome. It felt like an invasion. I started to fear that I was going crazy. I didn't know what to do. So I went to Kelly, Kathy Kelly's Bible study. I remember walking in, a knot in my stomach. In my mind, only weirdos and zealots went to Bible studies. I don't remember what was said that day. All I know is that when I left, everything had changed. I'll never forget standing outside that apartment on the Upper East Side and saying to myself, it's true. It's completely true. And the world looked entirely different, like a veil had been lifted off it. I had not one iota of doubt. I was filled with in, indescribable joy. The horror of the prospect of being a devout Christian crept back almost immediately. <laughs> I love that line. Oh no, what am I? <laughs> I spent the next few months doing my best to wrestle away from God. It was pointless. Everywhere I turned, there he was. And slowly there was less fear and more joy. The hound of heaven had pursued me and caught me whether I liked it or not. Love that testimony. Um, and I love it because it has two parts to it. It has this one part um, that there's this investigative journalist, this person who's, who's like, oh yeah, as if, very skeptical person. But then hearing about Christ and going, well, what? And checking it out. And that first stage uh, was very cerebral. She was looking into it with her mind, investigating. Uh, uh, it was about intellectual rigors, art, science, history, morality, philosophy. But then there's that second stage, and it fascinates me the most. She says she doesn't even know what was talked about in the Bible study. I mean, we can imagine that maybe she prayed to receive Christ. I don't know what happened there. Um, but somehow, she came to faith in Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are saved. And she was born again. I mean, we, we can read between the lines. She doesn't actually say that. But it's pretty obvious that that's what happened. She found faith in Christ. The Spirit of God came in here, and everything changed. And she says the veil was lifted. The doubt was gone. She was filled with an inexplicable joy. That's a personal encounter of faith in Jesus Christ. That's what she's describing. And so there's, there's kind of two parts. There's that whole intellectual looking at it, trying to figure it out. Is this true? Is this right? And then there's this moment. When faith dawns and boom, the, the, the light bulb goes on. I remember for me, uh, I was petrified that I would go to hell because I'd grown up in a family that went to church and hell was talked about. And 
And I was worried that I wasn't good enough. I had done wrong things. I had hit my sisters, disobeyed my parents, stolen from my parents, all these things. And I was worried that maybe my good deeds weren't good enough. And I went and talked to my mom. And she said, well, you know, Bill, the, the, well, it was William at the time. You know, William, uh, the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And she said, do you believe in Jesus, that he died on the cross for your sins? And I said, yeah. And then she said, well, what does it say? Oh, that I'll have everlasting life. And the light bulb went on. And I was saved, I believe, at that moment. Now, I didn't, there weren't, you know, I didn't have the euph euphoric feeling at the time. I just went to bed and slept soundly and never worried about not going to heaven again. And, uh, and so... That was a moment for me that was powerful. And you know, we've been talking uh, about Jesus. We've been looking at this, the, the cerebral stuff, the, the knowledge stuff, the wisdom, the, the, you know, like what are the eyewitness accounts of Jesus. We've been talking about uh, the fact that Jesus considered himself God and that he showed himself to be God in many powerful ways. We looked at how the New Testament was put together, you know, and you can use your mind to look into these things and study it and check it out. We, we, looked into the powerful, prophetic word of God and how it was fulfilled in Christ's life, written 750 years before Christ or 1,000 years before Christ, and then fulfilled in Christ over and over again. Hundreds of fulfilled prophecies in, in the Messiah. Unbelievable. And it proves that the Bible is a, a supernatural book, that it does actually foretell the future. And then we looked at the compelling evidence that Jesus Christ indeed did die. And then we looked at the compelling evidence that Jesus Christ indeed did rise to life. And I want to say that all of that stuff that we talked about, it's all about, you know, we can, we can study it with our minds. We can look at it. We can objectively figure it out. We can go to history books and, and search it. But it won't do you any good if you don't go to the second stage. <laughs> And have that encounter with the living Christ, the resurrected Christ, and encountering him for yourself personally. And it can be as simple as, oh, the light bulb going on, that Jesus died for your sins, and that's what takes you to heaven. That's a childlike faith. Or it can be super complicated where you're studying, 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 and finally you just lay down your objections, and you just say, okay, Lord, I give my life to you. And uh, then it can take time, and, and, but at some point, as you seek God, and as you desire him, as you yearn for him, he will show himself to you, and you will have a, what we call a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And when you have that personal encounter with Jesus Christ, I'd like to say there will be never any more doubts, but probably the doubts might come back at some later time. In my life, doubts came back. But you will be changed, and you will have the Holy Spirit working on the inside of you. And the cool thing about the Holy Spirit working on the inside of you is that he says he'll never let you go. And so you're secure in your faith. <clears throat> you know, the interesting thing uh, about these facts that I, I shared is that facts can be twisted and adjusted to the way your brain thinks. And as you take in information, you're always sifting through it. 
And, and basically, you can, you can create arguments against almost anything. <laughs> and if your mind is, is set on not believing, you won't believe. If your mind is set on believing, it's likely that you will believe and you will continue to believe. And that's the thing about our, our minds is that they are they're like metal traps that <laughs> just grab information and, and won't let us change our ideas very easy. Um, so the fact of the matter is, is that when you hear all this stuff about Christianity, we live in a society, in a world, that takes for granted that there is no God. And then they've gone out and kind of gone way out of their way to prove that there is no God. And all kinds of uh, scientific information and all kinds of things to show that Christianity isn't real. And the thing is that Christians are left kind of caught in, or or possible Christians are left kind of caught between two huge theories about how the world looks and exists. And sometimes they feel like they're trapped in the middle. And they want to believe in Christ, but this other, this, the, you know, what they're being taught in high school or whatever looks interesting. And Christians start wondering, am I just imagining this whole Christianity thing? Could the healings I hear about just be kind of like the placebo, placebo effect, and they're just believing really hard they're going to be healed, and so then they feel better. Maybe there's just nothing more than, than just matter out there. No, but how, how could all these prophecies of the Bible be true then? Now, that's kind of interesting. Well, maybe there's just parts of the Old Testament where perhaps just kind of lined up with Jesus. It looks miraculous, but it wasn't really. Or maybe there were, there, um, but then there was an awful lot of these passages that seemed to line up with Jesus. And, but maybe Pastor Bill was exaggerating it three weeks ago. You know, it's not really that uh, as as as, as uh, unlikely as he said. Uh, uh, but then, if that's true, but there's kind of heaven and hell that kind of hang in the balance, isn't there? But you know what? That's not a very good reason to believe. Just to keep from going to hell. You know, like that's you know like. If you don't believe, you're going to go to hell. Well, that's not a very convincing argument. Uh, but then you think, well, but ye, what if it's true? <laughs> and I do go to hell. And on and on. And, you, and it's, it's like you're going back and forth. Well, you know, I want to believe, but I, oh, no, I don't want to. And, and, and you're just kind of lost. And you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. And there's this questioning and, and never settling and always being sort of a little bit skeptical all the time. And maybe, and I remember being a Christian and having these, I, these thoughts flow through my mind. What if I'm delusional? What if that feeling I had when I first believed, or what if, what if those voices I'm hearing is maybe I'm schizophrenic or something? I don't know. And uh, sometimes I remember feeling that that pull of various arguments as I would study them. And so uh, if you feel that way, you're not alone. There's lots of people who have had doubts all through the centuries. Uh, in fact, most honest people have some doubts about the worldview that they currently hold. They kind of go like, yeah, there's some things that don't quite fit into my worldview and I can't explain them. Um, but for me, I've chosen a worldview that, that I feel best fits with all of the information. And 
you're right, there's a few things that I kind of go like, yeah, I don't quite know how that fits in. But I, I kind of leave that up to God. I figure God's wiser than me. He'll, he'll know how it all fits together. I don't know how it all fits together. It reminds me, though, that this confusion of what, whether to believe in God or whether to put all doubt aside or what. Reminds me of Elijah on Mount Carmel. Remember Elijah? Uh, remember the wicked queen Jezebel? She had like slaughtered all of the prophets of the Lord. And Elijah feels like he's the only one left. And, um, and so he, he throws out the gauntlet, you know, he, he, uh, he makes a challenge. Um, and, um, and the people are, are coming to the challenge. And, and I wanted to back up. You see, there was, there was the temple to the Lord, and then there was the temple to Baal. And the people of Israel were confused about which God was the real God. Now, they knew there was a God, but they didn't know which one. And uh, now, I've been, I've been to Lebanon, and I've been to Baalbuk, and I've seen the temple there. And I'm telling you, I've never seen anything like it. I have no idea how they built a temple like this. They say this, the, the foundation for this temple was laid back in, in prehistoric times. We don't know where and how it was laid. Now, the stones. I want you to imagine the stones that we saw that are on the bottom of, of Baal's temple. The stone is about from here to the back wall. It's about that high and about from here to that wall. Single stone. That's the foundation stones. There's about 30 of these stones. They're like 50 times as heavy as the blocks that were moved for the pyramids. Nobody has any clue how in the world they put those stones together. Those stones are cut so perfectly that they mesh together and you can't get a coin between those blocks. I couldn't believe it. Then that's the foundation. Then on top of that, uh, there's huge pillars that, that are uh, about 100 feet tall. It's amazing. <laughs> Abdel was showing me all this stuff. It was amazing. And so the people back then were worshiping Baal, and they had this amazing temple, and they really believed that he was real. And uh, then there was the temple of the Lord. And, and um, actually, this was before the temple of the Lord was built. There was just a tent for God, <laughs> you know, just a tent. And so um, the people were confused. There's this beautiful temple for Baal. There's this little tent for the Lord. Which one is it? Who's, who's the real God? And so Elijah calls for the showdown. And he gathers the 650 prophets of Baal, and he alone go up for the only prophet of the Lord. Seems like the Lord is, you know, on the low, short end of the stick here. You know, all the people were probably going to believe the 650 witnesses for Baal. One witness for the Lord? I don't know. And this is what Elijah says. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. And maybe you're like the Israelites of old. You're kind of wavering. You're not, wave, you're not believing in Baal. <laughs> At least I hope not. <laughs> but maybe you're wavering between there is a God of heaven and earth, and he's revealed himself as Jesus Christ, and this idea that, well, really, there is no God. There is nothing. And the people who believe in God are just 
kind of fooled. And so I, I'd like to change Elijah's word for us. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if there is no God, then don't worry about it. Like, make up your mind is basically what he's saying. <laughs> um, it's funny, it's interesting, because when Elijah says this to the people, the people just, they just look at him blankly. <laughs> they don't say anything. They're just like, prove it. By their silence, they're just kind of saying, okay, fine, prove it. Pretty sure that they were like a wave of the sea being tossed to and fro. Hearing the prophet of Baal speak one day, hearing the prophet of the Lord speak one day, and they're like, oh, I don't know, I don't know, they both sound pretty good, you know? Maybe Christianity doesn't seem to work the way it was purported to work in the Bible, and that's caused you some stress. I know it's caused me stress. When I read of all the miracles happening in the Bible, and then I pray for someone and they don't get well, or I, or I see someone praying for months and months and months, and they don't get well, and I go like, that doesn't seem like what it says in the Bible. And it causes me some strain on my, on my belief. And it reminds me of someone in the Bible. His name's John the Baptist. See, he's been put into prison. And things didn't quite work out the way he had planned it. And he started doubting whether Jesus was really the Messiah, the Christ. And he started wondering, like, oh, this, this doesn't seem to line up with what I... I thought was going to happen. And when you start, when you see this, and you realize who John the Baptist was, it's shocking that he would have these doubts. It's absolutely shocking. Listen, you know, remember, remember who John the Baptist was? He was the proclaimer of the way of the Lord. Remember, he was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was even born. From birth, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, the Bible doesn't even describe Jesus that way. Jesus had the Holy Spirit come on him at his baptism. Uh, so here's some guy that's been filled with the Holy Spirit as long as he can remember. Even before he can remember, he had the Holy Spirit in him. And John dedicated his entire life to preparing the way of, for the Lord. And he spent 30 years preparing for that ministry. And they went into that ministry with gung-ho and passion uh, John is the one who saw Jesus, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of the God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, John was filled with the Holy Spirit, so he knew exactly who Jesus was. The moment he saw him, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He had the anointing on his life. He had, was so exceptionally gifted by the Holy Spirit that his preaching was un. Stoppable. It defied logic. Thousands of people from many nations would come out to the middle of nowhere to hear this guy preach. And then they responded. And he would preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And boy, they would repent. They would confess their sins, get baptized, live a new life. John says, the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Well, did, did that happen? John was right there. He's baptizing Jesus, and the heaven opens, and a spirit uh, in the form of a dove comes down, lands on Jesus. A voice from heaven says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. I mean, John's convinced. Like, whoa, this guy is the Christ. He doesn't need any more convincing. 
And then he says, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. That's what he says in verse 34 of John chapter 1. So at the time, John is absolutely certain that Jesus was the Christ. He had zero doubt. And he added, he must increase, but I must decrease. I mean, he was giving his life for this message. Uh, look at how he was, he was dressed. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Uh, it doesn't sound like much of a party to me. You know? <laughs> like, he's out there wearing scratchy clothes, eating whatever he could find out in the desert there, you know, a little bit of honey here, some, some locusts. Mmm, tasty. <laughs> you know, like, wow. And he was doing all this, why? Because he had one passion, to prepare the way of the Lord. John was separated and focused for his passion. And you know what Jesus says about John? He says, Verily I say unto you, among them born of a woman, there is no, not risen a greater one than John the Baptist. Jesus is saying John the Baptist is greater than Ezekiel, Isaiah, greater than a Abraham, greater than all of the Old Testament people. This guy was impressive. Yet, John doubted. How, how is this possible? How can John possibly doubt? Well, check it out. Luke chapter 7, verse 20. Then man came to Jesus, and they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one that is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, what's going on in John's head here? Well, you see, John had preached like a zealot preached his heart out, and then Jesus came, and then John preached against the governor, and the governor threw him in jail. And so he's in prison. He's probably been in prison for between six months and two, a couple of years. And in prison, things mess with your head. I thought this was going to be a glorious takeover of the Roman Empire. I thought this was going to be fantastic. Jesus was going to come and sweep into power and oh it's going to be great i mean listen to what he preached he preached that jesus was powerful and that he would baptize people with the holy spirit and with fire and he said his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn and he will burn up the chaff like uh, with an unquenchable fire and then jesus comes and what does it say about jesus well he was meek and mild He's helping the poor. A bruised reed he would not break. And John's like, doesn't sound like the guy I was preaching about. And now I'm stuck here rotting in this prison. And doubts started to infiltrate his mind. Even though he had seen some of the miracles, he had heard about the miracles, but doubts were coming in. This doesn't seem to add up to what I thought was coming. Where's this burning up the chaff? You know, like, where's these pagan Romans? Aren't they getting burnt up like chaff? What's going on here? Why hasn't Jesus come and, and overthrown the government and rescued me from prison? He was having doubts because his personal life was not turning out to be what he thought was what God had promised him. It just wasn't adding up to the same. You know... 
if John, the greatest man who ever lived up to that point, could doubt, I think the rest of us can gut doubt too. We're all susceptible to doubting. We're all susceptible to looking at our life and going, this didn't turn out quite the way I thought it would. Jesus isn't quite the, the uh, good luck charm that I thought he would be. Jesus isn't, isn't really the, the powerful healer that I thought he would heal my mother's cancer. And she died. And all these doubts and frustrations come on us. And we end up being very much like John. Is Jesus really the Messiah? And there's doubts. And particularly if you're sick and you believe that Jesus is your healer. And it doesn't happen, you have doubts. Or maybe, you know, you read the Bible, it says God will provide for all your needs. But you've prayed and prayed for the college tuition and it never came. And you never got to go to college and now you've got some crappy little job. And I thought Jesus was going to provide for my needs. And I can't even afford a, a cell phone. What in the world? I need a cell phone. Well, maybe you don't. I don't know. But anyways. How did Jesus respond to John? Well, Jesus responded to John. He wanted John to have faith. And I believe if you have doubts today, Jesus wants you to have faith. It's his desire for you to have faith. And I believe Jesus will do something about it. If you're sincere and you seek God, Jesus will do something. John was sincere. He sent some friends. Well, go and ask Jesus. You know, he's my second cousin. Go and ask him, is he really the one? And Jesus doesn't even answer the question. <laughs> He's, he says to the messengers, because it, it says that, that at this time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. And so we replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus was saying, just look around you. And Jesus wasn't just pointing to the miracles, okay? Like we often think, oh, wow, it's incredible. Jesus is pointing to the miracles. But I haven't seen any miracles. Not helping my doubt at all. Um, you know, some of, the, some of the supposed miracles I had, I've seen, you know, someone was prayed for and their headache went away. I didn't really see that, you know? I couldn't feel that. I couldn't touch that. Oh, they got a, their headaches gone. Whoa, whoop de do. You know, maybe it was a placebo effect or whatever. And so there's, there's doubt. But you know what? John, Jesus wasn't just pointing out to the miracles. That's one of the things he was doing. But he was also pointing out to prophecy. You see, the Bible, and I'm sure John would know this, the Bible says in Isaiah, then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then the lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue will shout for joy, and water will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. Jesus performed the miracles that Isaiah talked about, plus he added the leprosy are cured and the dead are raised. He added a few more in for good measure. But I'm sure that he was referring John back to the scriptures. Look, prophecy about me is being fulfilled. Do you get it? And, you know, it's interesting that Peter writes something similar in his book. I love what Peter writes. P Peter's writing in, in uh, 2 Peter, 
in chapter 1, Peter's describing what had happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, you know, oh, well, we saw Jesus in all of his glory. His, his majestic glory was revealed to us. We couldn't even look at his face, and we saw Moses and, and um, Elijah with him. It was incredible. And then there was this voice from heaven that said, this is my son. Uh, I forget what it says. I don't even have it written down. But anyways, the voice from heaven came and said something about Jesus, about him being the son of God. And in Peter's goes, in the next verse, this is what Peter says. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. What? And you know what? He goes on to say after that, he describes the scriptures. Okay, he had this huge experience of being with the majestic glory, the Shekinah glory he saw in Christ on the mountain. He heard the voice from heaven talking about his son, but he says, we have a more sure word of pride. More sure than that, we have prophecy. Remember, I talked about this about three weeks ago, that the prophecies of the Bible are powerful. They're even more sure than seeing Christ face to face. It's incredible. So Jesus describes these two methods for dealing with doubt. One, check out the, the miracles. And two, check out prophecy. It's powerful. You know, the interesting thing about these miracles, Jesus was doing these miracles, right? And these two guys, they had to go back to John. Did Jesus come to John and do a miracle in front of John in the uh, just outside the prison door? No. John had to rely on these two witnesses to what they had seen. And I believe we today have to rely on witnesses to what witnesses have seen. You know, I was fascinated this week. I went to a prayer conference, and David Hearn, the, the Alliance president, was talking. And, uh, you know, he shared a couple things that were really struck me. He was at the uh, Alliance Seminary in the States, and um, they, were they were having a, a class on the, on the power of the Holy Spirit. And, um, and so the, the professor said, why don't you guys come forward and we'll pray for you one at a time so that God would anoint you with the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, they prayed for the first person and they collapsed on the floor. And they prayed for the second person, they collapsed on the floor. They prayed for the third person, they collapsed on the floor. Fourth person, this is you know, not very usual in Alliance College, right? This is like, what's going on? And David Hearn's like, what is going on? You know, and he's like, I am not going to be pushed down or shoved down. I am this, you know, I am not accepting anything unless it's real. So he just kind of plants himself. You know, he's a short, stocky guy, you know, and he's just like, I'm not going down. There's no way. They touched his chest, boom, he's flat on his back. <laughs> and he's like, and I'm like, Oh, this doesn't sound like a lot. This is the, the head of the alliance in Canada. This doesn't sound very alliance to me. But you know what? I know this guy. I take his word for it. This is real for him. And I take his word for it. And then, and then he described to us how he was preaching one place up in, I, I don't know where it was actually. I don't remember. But he was preaching. And he was preaching about that, the power of Jesus Christ to heal. And there's this little kid. That we, I saw a picture of him in a wheelchair. And he looked like about eight or nine years old. 
and while he's preaching on healing, this little kid decides that he's going to get out of his wheelchair, you know, and, and all the people, his parents and the people around, no, 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 stay in your wheelchair, <laughs> don't move, don't move, you know, and, and, but he's got the faith to believe that he can walk, right? And so some of the young people see this, and they go to him afterwards, and they, you know, behind the parents' back kind of thing, and they go, you know, do you want, you should try this, you should try to walk. And he gets out of the wheelchair and starts walking around, and he's healed. And it's just like, what? And, and this other time, David Hearn describes what happened where, where he's, he's, um, he's in a prayer meeting, you know, and, and, and he's asked to pray for this woman. Like, and, and she's deaf. She can't hear anything. And she's always been deaf. And he's like, oh, you know, I can pray for, you know, like aches and pains and colds and coughs and, you know, <laughs> flu bugs. But praying that someone will be healed, that's, you know, like, he's, he's a little intrepid about this. And so he's behind the woman, and, uh, and they start praying for her. And she says, you know, I can hear. And he whispers to the person next to him, this is really amazing. And she whips around and says, this is really amazing. And he's like, whoa. And then her husband says, whoa, what's going on? And she goes, that's what your voice sounds like. And she's blown away. And, he's, and David Hearns is going like, what? He can't believe it. And she's healed. And so we hear these stories. They're secondhand, but these are witnesses I trust. This man's my leader. He, I've met with him. He's been in our home. I've chatted with him for a long time. I've known him for years. He's a man of God. He doesn't lie. And he's seen these miracles. And it just blows me away. And then there's this other friend. I, I actually went on a trip. It was funny because she reminded me of this. She said, do you remember that trip? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember the trip because there was five of us jammed in this little Reliant, and we drove across Canada in the snowstorm. And I was going to see my fiance. Well, she wasn't my fiance at the time. She was my girlfriend. I was going to meet my, my parents-in-law for the first time, the craziest trip ever. We wiped out a few times and oh, <laughs> drove nonstop. It was just insane. But anyways, so this friend of mine, she gets up at the meeting, and she describes how they're praying at their church, and the, this guy came forward in a wheelchair, and he, he was lame. He couldn't walk. And they prayed for him, and he got out of his wheelchair and was walking around. And I'm just like, wow, that's amazing. Um, God is in the business of doing miracles. And we can either accept the testimony that we hear of these people that we trust, or we can just go, oh, I don't know. I, I don't know how someone starts hearing by believing hard enough, you know, <laughs> To me, that doesn't really work. Or gets out of a wheelchair by believing hard enough. Headache, yeah, okay. Depression, cure, yeah, okay. Maybe if you believe hard enough. But getting out of a wheelchair, a person who's deaf, suddenly hearing, I don't think so. So those are two ways of dealing with doubt. Hearing about the miracles that Jesus did and believing them, hearing the miracles today, and believing them. And secondly, believing the prophetic word of the Bible. But I want to share with you the third most powerful way. Oh my goodness, is it really 12? <laughs> well, I'm not going to push this on for another Sunday, so I'm just going to whip through these real quick. You know, Elijah called the prophets to Baal, 
Uh, and he showed them God by calling upon God, and God rained down fire on, on the altar. And what did the people say? The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They were unbelievably touched because they had a personal encounter with God. They're like, whoa. But guess what? Jezebel wasn't convinced. Even though all the people were saying, yeah, God, fire, we ain't no fire on, on, on the altar. Jezebel puts out an order to kill Elijah. And Elijah runs away and he's all depressed. But you know what? When there's a miracle, people tend to doubt. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, what was the first reaction of the apostles and the people who loved him? They were filled with doubt, filled with unbelief, filled with despair. And Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb and she looks inside and there's just two angels that says, oh, he's risen, go and tell his brothers. But she's overcome with grief. And she says, well, where have they taken him? And somebody comes along and she supposes that the gardener and says, where have they taken him? And she's crying. And she, grief is a barrier for her to see the reality of Jesus. She can't see him because she's filled with grief. And Jesus stands in front of her and says, Mary. All of a sudden she recognizes who he is. He's standing there in front of him. And you know, one day I was standing right here, right in this spot. And I was praying to God, and I was just saying, God, I can't believe you made me pastor. I'm doing such a horrible job. I'm, I'm a procrastinator. I stay up late at night preparing sermons, and they don't come out right. And I'm so frustrated. And this was late, late, late Saturday night, and I had no sermon ready. And I was just like, oh, I just can't stand this. And why did you make me a pastor? And I hate this. And I, and I was depressed, and I was crying. And all of a sudden, he spoke. And he said, Bill, just like he said to Mary, Mary, and I heard his voice. And he said, I love you. And I was just like, I was just overwhelmed. I sat down and bawled. I was like, you love this mess? How can you love me? And it was his voice spoke to me. And I was I preached the next day. I've, I've been preaching ever since. I didn't quit. We need to hear the voice of God. And when we hear Christ's voice, that personal encounter with Christ, faith wells up and we carry on with the work that we're called to do. Um, you know, Mary, Mary Stevenson writes, One night I had a dream. And as I was walking along the beach with my Lord across the sky, Dark sky flashed scenes from my life. For each scene, I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand. One belonged to me and one to my Lord. After the last scene of my life flashed before me, I looked back at the footprints in the sand, and I noticed that many times along the path of my life, especially at the lowest and saddest points, there was only one set of footprints. And this really troubled me, so I asked the Lord about it. Lord, you said that once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I noticed during the saddest, most troublesome parts of my life, there's only one set of footprints. I don't understand why. When I need you most, you leave me. And he whispered, my precious child, I love you. and I will never leave you. Never, ever. During those trials and testings, when you saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. 
So grief is one of the barriers. Another barrier is fear. The disciples were all fearing for their lives. It says in, in, in uh, John uh, 20, 19, on the evening, the first day of the week, when the disciples were together and the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. This is the evening of the Sunday that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, they're living in fear of the Jews. They've already heard from Mary Magdalene that Jesus is raised from the dead. Peter's already seen him. John went to the, to the tomb, and he looked in, and he believed. But here they are, all huddled indoors, doors locked. They're afraid. And I believe that fear keeps us sometimes from knowing God, from experiencing God. And Jesus just shows up in the middle of them. And what does he say? Peace be with you. Don't be afraid. And he shows them their hands, and they're filled with joy. And you know what? Recently, fear has engulfed my life. And I've been afraid for the first time in my life. I, I know, I've shared with you that I don't have fear. I don't know why I didn't get that gene. But it's kind of dangerous. But recently, I've had fear in my life. And I remember a day way back when when I had some fear in my life. I thought my world had been destroyed. I thought everything about me had been destroyed. And that I could never be a pastor again. I thought I, my life was ruined. And as I walked along the road that night, in absolute agony and despair, somebody was walking beside me. And somebody put their arm around my shoulder and spoke words of comfort and said, the future is bright and you will have a good future. And I believe that was Jesus. I didn't see anybody. There wasn't real pressure on my shoulder. But I'm telling you, he was there, and he was caring for me. I didn't ask him to come. I didn't seek him, but he was there. Fear turns to joy when you have an encounter with Christ. Thirdly, then there's this unbelief. You know, Thomas is kind of unfairly treated, you know, doubting Thomas. You know, he's, it's, he's even made it into the dictionary, doubting Thomas, you know. <laughs> so uh, I think you're going to skip all that. And... Um, but Thomas wasn't with the other disciples, and then Jesus comes along and says to him, you know, Thomas, I heard you wanted to stick your fingers in my, in the, in my hand holes and put your fist in my side hole. Well, here you go. Go ahead. And Thomas falls down, and he says, oh, my Lord and my God. Did Jesus have to do that? No. But Jesus cares about you and your doubts, and he cares about your faith. And he wants to give you what you need. And Thomas needed something more than the other apostles. And you know what? I believe lots of people are longing for something more. But what we need is a touch from God. A touch from his Holy Spirit. I remember one day when God touched me. I was right there where Jason's sitting, and uh, there was people on both sides of me, and Sarkis was preaching up here, and he was preaching on healing in Arabic. I had no idea what he was talking about. But then he made an altar call and said, anybody want to get healed, get healed. And uh, so I was sitting there in pain because I had a cracked rib because I'd been foolish and uh, had a, well, it's hard to describe, but I, I fell off my flying tube and cracked my rib when I hit the water uh, from 40 feet at 40 miles an hour. Yeah, it really hurt. <laughs> but it was my own fault, and I felt silly about it. And 
And, you know, Sarkis came and he prayed for the person on my left and he prayed for the person on my right. And, and then he carried on, you know, because they raised their hand when they asked for prayer. And Naya comes over to me and says, uh, Pastor, how come you didn't, did you get prayed for? And I'm, I don't know, it's my own fault, you know, like, come on, Pastor, go. So she embarrassed me, so I'm like, oh, yeah. So I walk over, uh, uh, yeah, I need some prayer. And, and Sarkis puts his hand on my chest. As soon as he did, he started praying for me in Arabic. I had no idea what he said. But I felt God's finger inside me pushing the rib back into place. I felt it. It was like, oh, what was that? <laughs> and I felt his touch on me. And I never had pain from that crack, that sharp pain of a cracked rib. I never had it again. I still had the dull ache from the impact, but the crack, which was over here, never felt another bit about that. I had been touched by God. Fourthly, Jesus came to seven apostles on the side of, of Galilee, and he, he cooked breakfast for them, and, and they all met him. And then he took Peter aside, and he said, Peter, come over here. Do you love me more than these guys? And Peter says, oh, yeah, I love you. Feed my sheep. Then Jesus says, do you love me, Peter? Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. And Jesus says, Peter, feed my sheep. And then the third time, Jesus says, Peter, do you really love me? And Peter's like brokenhearted. He says, yes, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. What was Jesus doing there? I think Jesus was reminding Peter that a few days earlier, maybe about 10 days earlier, Peter had denied his Lord three times, that he even knew him. I think Jesus was going right down, Peter, why are you out here fishing? I called you to be a fisher of men. You're out here fishing for fish. What's wrong with you? Do you love me or not? And I think he did it three times to remind Peter that just because he failed, he still had a job to do. And you know, I've had this experience. I remember that I, I love pleasure rather than God. And I read this verse uh, that people will be terrible people in the last days and they will be having a form of godliness but denying its power have nothing to do with such people. And the Holy Spirit came on me in such power and conviction that I was a sinful man and that I wasn't living up the right way before God. And I confessed my sin and Jesus filled me with his Holy Spirit and I became a preacher from that day forward. Um, you know, here's the thing. People hear about, you know, my experience here and about my experience of hearing God's voice and in, in just this week, I had this powerful experience I mean, the, the leader of the session just said, think of one thing that's hindering you from, from your faith in God. And I thought of my one thing, and then God just came in and showed me in an unmistakable way his great love for me in a way that I could understand. I don't want to describe it all, but it was so powerful. And, <laughs> yeah, of course, I started bawling and... Jennifer's like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and uh, I had to actually leave the room because I was so messed up because God had spoken to me so powerfully. And, you know, people come along and they say, wow, that's so amazing. You have all these experiences of God. And every week when I hear God's voice so I can preach properly, 
It's awesome. And people think, well, you're such a spiritual guy, Pastor Bill. Baloney. I'm not a spiritual guy. I want you to know that I'm often depressed about how poor my Bible study reading is, how poor my prayer life is. And I'm frustrated. I'm not a spiritual guy. And I'm embarrassed by it. And I'm embarrassed to say it right now. I'm not those things. So why do you have these why do, you, why do you have these experiences then? Something must be going on, you know. <laughs> well, tell you what's going on. God has made me with a soft heart and a longing heart. I desire God more than anything in my life. And the Bible says, seek, when you call on me and come and pray to me, I will listen to you. I, if you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart, and I will be found of you, declares the Lord. I... From as long back as I can remember, since becoming a believer, I've been seeking God. You know, you know how many times I've gone forward at an altar call after I was a Christian? Dozens and dozens and dozens of times. Falling on my face, crying out for the Holy Spirit. You know, I've been to the Pentecostal services where they're praying for the Holy Spirit to come on me. And, okay, just let your mouth speak. Oh, let, let, it, let it go, let it go. And I've been praying and asking God, and, and, and I never spoke in tongues. But, but I was seeking him with all my heart. Just this week, when Pastor David Hearn was giving the altar call, I mean, man, I was up there. I wanted him to pray for me, to give me the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I'm longing for God all the time. And you know, King David says, um, says that a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. And you know, God breaks my heart regularly for the sin in my life. And I go to him and I plead with him that he would just use me one more week. If he would just fill me afresh, even though I'm a sinful man, if he would just use me, it'd be awesome. So I want to challenge you. When, when God points out a problem, do you, do you respond that way? Do you have a broken and contrite heart? Do you seek God with all your heart? Are you willing to to be uncomfortable and, and be dramatic and go in front of people and ask pastors to pray for you. Do you know, I can't really remember, other than the time with Sarkis, I can't remember one time where um, something extremely dramatic happened to me when I came forward. Of all the 50 or so times that I've gone forward, probably more than that, probably 100 times I've gone forward, I can't remember a time when something really dramatic happened while I was at the front at the altar. In fact, when I went with Sarkis, I actually was at the back, so I didn't actually come for an altar call. <laughs> but God did, does move in my life, and God does speak to me, and I do experience him over and over and over and over again. And I believe that God is fulfilling his word. If you seek me, you, you will be found by me. It might not be the moment you're seeking him. I've, you know, I've, I've fasted and prayed for days on end, didn't hear God's voice at all. But within a few days, boom, <laughs> it hits me. So I, God works in mysterious ways. But I believe that he's true to his word. He will not despise you if you have a contrite heart. He will not despise you if you're seeking him with all your heart. And he will show up.
And you know what? If one of my sons comes to me and says, Dad, I'd like a, a car for my birthday. And I say to him, yeah, fat chance. <laughs> and he says to me, well, don't you love me? I would say, no, it's a double fat chance, man. <laughs> it's not happening now. And sometimes I think we think that God should show up in our prison cell and do a miracle right in front of us just to prove that he loves us. When in fact, he has already proven that over and over and over and over again. And he's not, he's not bound to do it on our terms. He's already proven our love to us. And as we, we talked about a few weeks back, um, if we don't believe what the Bible says, if we don't believe the testimony of the apostles and, the, and the, the people, our leaders, if we don't believe their testimony, neither will we believe if Jesus comes and shows up in your prison cell and does a miracle. It's all the same deal. We either believe or we don't. And we end up saying, oh, it's some weird apparition. I, I don't know, that was just a dream. You know, Jacob wrestled with God and wouldn't let God go until he blessed him. What are you doing to wrestle with God? You know, the Bible's interesting. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Joshua said, choose you this day whom you will serve. Who are you going to serve? Today is the day of salvation. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if there's no God, then don't worry about it. You know, Lee Iacola, uh, creator of the Ford Mustang, he once told business associate, the trouble with you is that in college, they taught you not to take any action until you had all the facts. You've got 95% of the facts, but it's going to take you another six months to get that last 5%. And by the time you do, it's going to be out of date. And I believe some Christians are like that. They're, they're just trying to get everything all lined up perfect. It's never going to happen. Most, most of the people that come to the Lord, they've never seen a miracle. But they believe. And Jesus told Thomas, blessed is the one who believes in spite of the fact that he hasn't seen. John saw the empty tomb and he believed. And you know what? I came to this time in my life where I kept wondering, you know, is this true? What was, am I really a Christian? And the struggle. And one day I just said, you know what? To believe is what's required to be a Christian. That's it. Okay. I believe. And the funny thing is, is since that day, the doubts that have come have only been fleeting doubts, never anything that really attacked. And I have come to this place where my faith is so strong, it's, it's unbelievable. I believe in, in Jesus and the life hereafter stronger than I believe in the reality of the stuff I see here. I just believe it wholeheartedly. And I, I've recently come to that understanding of my own faith. I'm just like, wow, I really do believe. I can't believe how much I believe, actually. And so I want to challenge you to, to make a choice. And so I, I'm just going to ask the worship team to come and lead us in a closing song. And if you'd like to, to let everybody know here and stand out in the crowd and come and just 
pray. I'll pray for you if you come to the front, anoint you if you want to be anointed for healing. I'll do whatever prayer. But come, ask, you know, there was the, the, the one guy who, who was having trouble believing that his son would be healed. And he said, Lord, help me in my unbelief. And if that's all you want prayer for, come and be prayed for that your unbelief would disappear. Let's worship the Lord.